Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to another AMP podcast episode. I guess I was about to say commentary, but this isn't a commentary. This is a, a simple Patreon episode about a specific film that Mitch and I are going to discuss. Uh, by the way, I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're going to talk about the 1987 film Near Dark. Caleb Colton no longer belongs to our world. We'll give him a week to see if we can call him one of us. He belongs to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. I don't want to kill. He makes a kill tonight. And they all belong to the night. It's three hours short for a bus ticket home. You help me out? What are you on? Believe me, I told you. Don't think of it as killing. Amen. Amen. Don't think at all. It's just something that you do night after night. It's only ever a question of how. Nervous? I would be too if I were you. Near dark. It'll be your boys falling in with control. Check out time. some time, son. Like, damn, this is my family. Let it go. Near dark. Pray for daylight. The night has its price. Fade in. A mosquito alights on a human arm. The stinger injects in the warm flesh. The insectile body becomes full and red as it sucks the blood. The fist of the arm clenches, the forearm muscles tighten, trapping the stinger. The mosquito struggles to pull its needle-like appendage free. The tendons of the arm hold it firm, forcing blood into it. The insect struggles. Blood engorges it, swelling its body. It swells, swells, Pops in a spritz of blood. Caleb. Dumb Dumb suck. suck. Dumb suck. (laughs) And so begins Near Dark, the screenplay. That's the how the screenplay for Near Dark begins. And uh, an interesting bit of trivia about that's how the movie begins. We get this close-up of this uh, farm boy getting bit by a mosquito. And that mosquito... (laughs) was homegrown by the by the crew i don't know who i mean i assume they they 
um, hired someone. I don't know how you how you do this, but because of any kind of fear of contamination and liability that would come from just using a random mosquito, they had to grow a mosquito themselves uh, so in order to make sure it was a clean mosquito for just for this one shot in uh, near dark. So there we go. We're starting off talking about the the attention to detail, the care that was given to the details of this film. Mitch uh, and, and the unique aspect of how the script was written it was it was yeah. written in a, a style that was Oliver Stone said it was kind of like haiku poetry and mm-hmm. there were a lot of people writing that way in the 1980s all inspired frankly by Walter Hill and right. if you looked at the scripts what you would notice was that every sentence began along the same justified line and so mm-hmm. it did create a kind of strange rhythm I should add, by the way, everybody, that um, here we are in the end of July. My voice is fried, and I'm not trying to do some kind of new Hollywood actor vocal fry <laughs> affectation. I have been battling COVID for the entire month of July, yeah. and although I tested negative on day 13, I've still got something going on in my in my voice. So yeah, please I, forgive I me, say, friends. I was going to say that we had promised this episode you know, at the beginning of the month, and it took us this long to do it because both of us were battling COVID. Uh, not related. We did not get it from each other or from the same source, but we sure <laughs> did get it at the same time. Like We did. The same day, pretty much, yeah. uh, that we tested positive very close. But you to got over so. it really fast, and I don't know. It likes I living guess. inside my body or something. It's terrible. I still have... I think I'm still having some lingering. It took me a minute to get my sleep cycle back. It took me... I had to go to the emergency room for some heart stuff that I thought might be happening that turned out okay. Uh, other things. I just feel like I've got the little lingering bits of just trying to get my body back on track. Not that we're doing a COVID episode, but it's... Um, no, but I feel like a vampire because I'm still on steroids and I can't sleep at night. So I'm living I, nocturnally. Still, I, I'm having those two-hour... I'm watching movies at 3 a.m., after having been asleep for four hours and just suddenly waking up for no reason. <laughs> I've been, I've been the sleep cycle the, has just been completely screwed up. I've been listening to The Dark Side of Genius, the audiobook of it. And so every time I hit a Hitchcock movie, I think, oh, maybe I should go watch watch that. And it's four in the morning and I go down. Last night I tried Foreign Correspondent, which, um, whoa, that's a rough start. It takes a long time for that movie to get going. Yeah. That was, that was, I, like, I, like, I like me some Joel McRae, but... There's a lot of Joel McRae at the beginning before it gets yeah. doing anything. Yeah. So Near but, Dark is an interesting movie in that um, directed by Catherine Bigelow, co-written with Eric Red and Catherine Bigelow. Eric Red had written The Hitcher with a um, Rucker Hauer movie with C. Thomas mm-hmm. Howell from a year or two before. and um, Down the, and dirty movie right there. That's yeah, a, for sure. A filled, lean, mean, down and dirty movie. De- lean, mean, homoerotic machine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it like 75 minutes long or so? I don't know it's why I'm remembering fast. it being very, very, like, swift. But, yeah. And this was that period when uh, a lot of movies were, as we were moving into the, to the 90s, that home video would become a, a way to finance films. This movie was financed by De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, who I had been working for, and then DEG went under, and at the end they had several, they had, I don't know, several, they had a few movies that they still hadn't released, and so they were really struggling to have enough money to get something out into theaters with no money really to market it, and this was at the tail end of that cycle. So when I remember when this movie came out, I saw it at, I think, the Vista 
which is where Sunset and Hollywood meet, a really tiny theater. It may have actually been the first time I was there. And Quentin Tarantino has since bought the Vista. It's one of the theaters that he owns in L.A. And I always loved that theater after I went there that first time. I went back um, many times. But I, I think that's where I saw it. And it was you really, it was the only place in town it was showing. And, and it was at a yeah. weird hour. And, and it was kind of sad that the movie got lost the way that it did. Because I think about it in some ways the way that I think about American Werewolf in London and The Howling. And this was I, the same year as The Lost Boys. And it's kind of the, you know, the kid brother of the big Hollywood vampire movie that is in many ways, you know, smarter, faster, snottier, more interesting. Uh, and not that I I love American Werewolf in London, but there's something about about the howling that I just really, really love because mm-hmm. it's such a little movie. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I, the similarities between this and the, and the Lost Boys, which had to be accidental, but there are the, like some pretty strong similarities between... Caleb's story and and uh, Jason Patrick's I can't remember his character's name. My, oh, how could I forget Michael? Michael, Michael. Yeah. I, I'll say your name five thousand times in the movie. I forgot that he's that's the the joke of that movie is Kiefer Sutherland says his name like fifty five times. Um, the similarities are there are there you know and and you even have the sibling pursuing like you know it's a lot different in that sense but there's still like very close similarities. I like I like The Lost Boys, even though I know it's not a great film. It's I have nostalgia for it. I don't have nostalgia for Near Dark because I didn't see it until I was like almost thirty years old. Yeah, which is <laughs> well, it's probably due to what you're talking about with their lack of marketing and their lack. I mean, I would have been aware of most movies in 1987. That was right when I was really starting to pay attention, and um. Then in subsequent years in, the, in home video, you know, I was a, a, a massive Point Break fan, still am. So I would have thought that I would have been looking for Catherine Bigelow movies. Um, I was a big James Cameron fan. I loved Terminator. I loved Aliens. I loved uh, The Abyss and all that stuff that was happening that I was seeing on home video. Uh, I would think Near Dark would have been right up my alley, but for, I don't think my video store had it or any of my video it stores It was really had hard it. to find. I think there was a release yeah. on Artisan maybe. Um I think that's maybe who put it out. I think that's the old disc that I have. But because of the legal business, it just was hard to to find. And then then it was then then it became part of this weird merger with the Carol Co. What was left over with Carol Co. after it went under? Mm-hmm. De Laurentiis and Carol, Carol Co. were both purchased by some holding company. And again, uh, it's really hard to find these movies. I think you just told me you saw a bargain basement version of Johnny Handsome. The other day, right? I have in the store. one, and that's well, it's, that's it's, Carol Co. That and mm-hmm. Total Recall was Carol Co. And obviously, the Rambo movies. So, um, but they had a TriStar thing going on with them. So there are. Right. It's a really weird. These two kind of powerhouse, eighties slash nineties, companies, that both were independent and then went under, find themselves in this strange limbo. Yeah, and it's still not easy to procure a copy of Near Dark. I uh, I should have jumped on the Twilight Time release when it was out. Now it's priced out in my range of buying one, one Blu-ray. You know, I, 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 I haven't looked lately, but the last time I saw, I think it was $110 and or something. And how did Twilight there. Time wind up with it? Over, cause they Twilight were, Time... They were a they Fox had, subsidiary, weren't they? Well, they had they were able to get these short term deals. They they released a lot of movies. Like the last detail was on Twitter. Movies that have had weird release issues, yeah. they tended to get for a second. 
Yeah. And I don't know why. I, I don't know the ins and outs of that. Somebody that's more of an expert in home video and how uh, those licenses and so forth work would know. But I know that that was one of their specialties. Like I have a Twilight Time of Chilly Scenes of Winter, the uh, uh, the uh, Joan Micklin Silver film, which is also really hard to find. I really, I was on this Joan Micklin Silver kick and I was like, I've got to see all her movies. That one I had to really pay out for. I, I don't know, I was possessed one day to pay way too much money for that. But that was another one that was like in weird limbo, but you could maybe find a weird cut of it on a crappy DVD that you'd buy at Walgreens or something off of a spinner rack. It's just it, such strange stuff. It seems like home Criterion would be like the perfect home for Near Dark. Well, I think it's going to be. Is uh, it? Well, it, it was on the channel. It is on the Criterion channel from time to time. They pull it, so that tells me something's fishy. It, it's not one of their permanent uh, residents. I think Turner's but, had it too, hasn't it? TCM, Turner, I think Oh, I've had. seen it on TCM a couple yeah, of times, yeah. yeah. And it's one of those movies. This is one of those movies. It's kind of a throwback in a way for me because I don't have a copy of it. Um, it's like appointment television again like it's like the rare thing where it's like one of my favorite movies but I, um like in the old days like citizen Kane's on the late show tonight and you'd have to like make sure you're home to watch it because there was no home video in this case it's like yeah when it's on tcm i watch it yeah because i, I i'm going to take the opportunity to watch it whenever i can or when it was on criterion i watched it and i can't recall if the big low commentary was there i don't think it was on criterion but because that would it's be probably owned to... by Artisan, mm-hmm. who she did the commentary for originally. Right. So whatever they got to do, I really do think that would be a fantastic entry. Um, and somebody would do some fantastic artwork. Or even if Arrow did it, somebody yeah. cool. You know, yeah. really, it's, it seems like a great home for uh, Arrow would be a great home for it because they, uh, they're typical fare, you know. But uh, Criterion, like I said, has had has a history of having shown it on their channel. So... That always makes you cross your fingers, like, and hope that it's going to be a disc release or a. Man, I, I honestly, we could, we'll get into the, the details of the cinematography and so forth. I would like to see a new transfer. I'd like to see a 4K, yeah. like Criterion oh, disc. It would, and see it would look great. The, it would look amazing. Because even on this DVD that I watched it on, or this rip of a DVD, yeah. um, it looks gorgeous. The artisan transfer was beautiful. It looks pretty good, but you can yeah. also tell that there's some depth there that you could probably see more. Yeah. Um, of Greenberg's Adam Greenberg's the name of the cinematographer. He also shot Terminator, and uh, just Terminator just Two, great. right? I think he did Terminator One, didn't he? I thought he was the. Maybe I'm mistaken. I think he shot but Terminator he Two, but I'm not. I could be wrong. We'll we'll, maybe to, he did we'll both. double check it. What about um, what makes this Alien adjacent or Aliens adjacent? <laughs> Yeah, I made that joke like when I announced that we were going to do this episode. I showed the old uh, Martini Ranch video that was Bigelow shot with almost the entire cast of aliens in it, and teasing it as a. Uh, it was like that. Also, was adjacent to uh, wait. What Martini Ranch? To, what's that? Yeah, the the Bill Paxton's band, and you know, oh, uh, oh, yeah, they were kind of that weird like mid sixty, a little late for new wave, but post new wave band that he was in. And they did that video. It was like a kind of Western video with basically the entire cast of Near, Near Dark. Dark. Oh, including, okay. yeah, everyone. So obviously everyone Jeanette Goldstein, it. who plays Vasquez, is in this. Lance mm-hmm. Henriksen and um, and Bill Paxton, all from Aliens, are all uh, members of the cast. And, and, of course, at one point, Caleb wanders down Main Street and the marquee on the movie theater behind him is showing Aliens. So Cameron... Uh, you know, Cameron and, and Bigelow were together, and Cameron clearly uh, helped 
um, helped make this thing happen. Yeah, not in an unofficial capacity, though. Right. right? I think I had it in my mind for a long time that there was a more official capacity. The official capacity for them was was, uh, the deal at Fox where she did Strange Days and he did Mm -hmm. uh, True Lies. Is that right? It was True Lies at Fox. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he had twice he did the budget. Ab- the Abyss at Fox as well. Or was it the Abyss? He had twice the budget she had. It was a it was a two picture deal, but he got two thirds of the deal, and she got a third of the deal, or something like that. Well, I think I I think I had uh, flipped in my mind. Uh, I think that I thought he did the screen story for this a long a long time ago, and I think I was mistaking it for the Strange Days story. Right. By right. Credit because that she and Eric Red wrote this together. I think. Right, and this was straight spec. Right. Uh, they yeah they owned the they script, got together. So. Mm-hmm. They got together and, and said, let's write a Western, and then thought about the marketability of Westerns in 1987 and said, how about if we add a marketable bent to this? So this did not start out uh, at the at the seed phase as a vampire movie. It started out as a Western. And at the time, what were the Westerns? What was the last successful Western in they said, Silverado, Pale Rider, that's about it. Yeah, I don't yeah. even know how successful Pale Rider was. Yeah. Uh, at that time, uh, that was a real and like, Silverado so than now a dark age. Silverado cost yeah. a lot of money. I don't think it made a lot of money. Yeah, so success in westerns was uh, a distant memory. I don't think it really recovered until Unforgiven, and I'm not sure if it really recovered in general. Dances it's with always, Wolves, '89. And Dances it? with Wolves. If you, yeah. I never, I know it's a western. I never think of it that way. It's really, a swirl. It's a uh, yeah. It's something else. I don't yeah. know. I, I guess I still. I have an old-fashioned uh, definition of westerns, which is uh, there's there, somebody's got to meet in the street. Somebody's got to, you know, right? <laughs> there's got to right. be an old town and a lawman or something. I don't know. Well, but, but it gets us to this because they they do use a lot of that uh, iconography in this film, like right from the beginning. You know, we get this, you know, country boy with the hat pulled down low, leaned back, getting stung by a mosquito. You know, right away you're getting this western feel and. Um, and we draw we we jump. I don't know if you wanted to do more background before we got. Well, I was just going to say show. that from a genre point of view, I think that the thing that's so delightful about the movie is that it, it is it is working at least three genres that I can count, and there's maybe another one in there I missed, but certainly it's a western, it's a horror film, and it's also a lovers on the run movie. So it's mm-hmm. it's in that it's it's in that tradition of they live by night and Bonnie and Clyde and you know those and uh, uh, what's the what's the um, uh, what's the gun crazy? So it's doing Bad that Lands. as well. Yeah, Badlands. Yeah, so yeah. I love all that. But then there's that added element of that's lovers on the run plus a family. Right. Well, that's kind so, of like, isn't that how they live by night is? Isn't that the boy and the girl yeah, and there's then a there's a group bit. that they're kind of with as well? Yeah, that's right. I haven't seen that one in a minute. Um, Nicholas Ray's yeah. They Live By Night, right? Like, um, but Bonnie yeah, and Clyde. So. What's yeah. The same thing. Well, Outlaws on the run. Yeah, with the, you got a couple of people. Yeah. But this is more like a traditional family structure. I don't think Stell Parsons and Gene Hackman, that's like a sibling. There's a sibling thing. This is mom and dad and, and, and brother. Pollard. So you got a, and a crazy got, bro- older brother and a, and a creepy younger brother. You yeah. Got, right. That's yeah, true. Yeah, you're right. Michael Pollard but, kind you know, of there's, qualifies. There's, there's kind yeah. of a mom, dad, Michael J. Pollard, sure. Bonnie Clyde, five, five some. We got a five some here, don't we? Right. In in this case, yeah, you have to fight. In this case, though, there's a lot of power in the parental units. Yes, that's true. Like, and that's the that's the source of a lot of the conflict in the story. You know, is this um, deference to Jesse Lance Hendrickson's character, and um, 
Diamondback. That's her only name. Right? There's right. no other mention of a name. Uh, Jeanette Goldstein. There's they're certainly very they're very parental. Yes. Uh, even though May, much like in Lost Boys, again another similarity. May and um, Michael. Oh no, Caleb. No. Caleb. No, May and the boy. Homer. I can't Homer. Homer. Thank you. Um, their relationship's very similar to uh, uh, the relationship with the girl and the little boy in Lost Boys as well. It's like very right. similar. Right. Where she's like kind of a older sister mother. Like mom's not around enough kind of older sister. Well, and I think the idea of uh, Homer and, and May is that they were in love, right? That they were... Or they were... One turn... However you qualify that in a vampiric sense where if you one turns the other, you're linked. Right. One turns for, the other and... and right. The other one was then stunted and not able to, but I think there's this unrequited love thing that's going on between the two of them because Homer's hmm. clearly jealous of Caleb coming into his relationship with her. See, I think of it as and that's he why he wants her. to bite the sister. Is it you think he turned he her? Turned, he turned her. I thought that that was the case because isn't he older? He's from yeah, he is older. You're right. An earlier time than her. Right. She's you're the right. youngest until okay. Caleb. She's the youngest of the right. And then, so he has that link with her. Then when she turns Caleb, she shifts over to Caleb. I never thought about it romantically, I guess, but that is a little bit more interesting. It's a little, definitely more transgressive. Uh, It's suggestive, you know, uh, maybe more interesting in that sense. I think that's why he wants the I just thought it was a vampiric. Yeah, because he wants to, well, one, one, he wants revenge on Caleb. Right. For... But also, he wants to have his own. Okay, if I can't have her, then I'm going to have this other thing. And while I'm at it, I can get it from the guy. You know, I can yeah. get it by hurting the guy that hurt me. It's good and stuff. And we'll both man. be little kids <laughs> That's together. Some good character uh, dynamics. Yeah, yeah, and they're little kids. It's such a creepy. It always weirds me out. And he's um, uh, Joshua Miller, the name of the actor who plays Homer, uh, and is almost identical in. River's Edge, right. you know, he plays. I if you showed me a still from each one of the movies, I wouldn't know which one it was. You well, know, they were only within about a year of really each specific. other, right? Yeah, and she, yeah. I guess she had seen it. I don't know. It almost seems so. like she would have had to have seen. Oh no, River's Edge is a 1987 release as well, so she must have seen it. Did pretty, Ed Pressman like early before. produce River's Edge as well? Mm, that I don't remember. I don't remember the release situation with River's Edge. Yeah. Um, I love River's Edge, though. That's another. That's another one I could talk about. That one all yeah. all day long. Uh, but yeah, so Joshua Miller, who ha- who is the brother of Jason Patrick, another connection to the Lost Boys, and the son of I'm forgetting their dad's name, but he is the younger exorcist in The Exorcist. Jason Miller. Jason Miller. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so crazy Jason connections. Miller. So jo- Joshua is Jason Miller's son. Yes. And Jason and Patrick's Jason brother? Patrick's brother. I didn't know that. And now, wow. The fact that you don't know that's making me doubt myself, but I know that's true. <laughs> what a trip. I remember finding that out and going like, man, that's really weird. Uh, now, I'm now while you can vamp. Yeah, I can vamp <laughs> while, right, while um, you look that up. But that's while amazing. I look that up just to make sure I'm not crazy. So the other thing that's interesting sure about the crazy. film is it's incredibly, um, you know, it's incredibly ap- atmospheric and it is mm-hmm. supposed to be set in Texas. And with a little bit mm-hmm. of Kansas and a little bit of Oklahoma, it was all shot in Arizona, not far from Phoenix. And in this last version, the last time I watched it, I thought I maybe even saw the silhouette of Camelback in the distance. Um, but oh, apparently yeah. they went and shot this thing um, in the winter 
and it was uh, they had snow and it hadn't snowed there in years and if there are, there are a couple of magic hour shots oh, yeah, yeah. that you can see patches of snow so apparently it's supposed to be set in the summer the scene at the beginning where she's licking the ice cream cone and they're they have their first encounter was really cold and so i guess everybody had ice cubes in their mouth so that their breath was, wouldn't congeal so that they could continue to make it look like a hot summer night which they do a great job with it's a film that is so they do atmospheric long lenses you know smoke i mean it's a great 80s look neon all those things that we love mm-hmm. about 80s movies are at work in this in this film now tell me this though don't you think it would have been easier to just shift gears and make it set in the winter well i guess <laughs> I mean, my me, was... response would to that would simply be that i think there's something about love stories at night that are mm-hmm. best in hot nights hot summer nights sure. And that's I, so, I like so. at close range is another example of a movie that is a hot summer God, night love movie. What? Well, we're right on the same page because I was just going to say, since we're talking about the opening to this movie, it's kind of it's remarkable how similar the beginning of this is to at close range as well. It's very so he drives totally. in on the truck, has a little thing with some guys on the street, sees the girl. Now the, the order's a little bit reversed, but in the close mm-hmm. range, he sees the girl first, has the. Uh, the thing with Beansy from Sopranos and the liquor and all that, but then he goes over and approaches the girl, and it plays differently. But boy, it's similar. Long, it long really, lenses. it's remarkably similar. Yeah, Ron Wesley's yeah. cinematography is really similar to, to Adam Greenberg's cinematography. Yeah, yeah. and this oh, by movie the way, Adam also Gre- doesn't use any. Um, I can tell any day for night. They do kind of some dusk for night stuff and some magic hour stuff, but they never go full day for night, which is one of the things I really love about the movie. It's because it never feels like they're cheating anything. Well, it feels like, and I'll say this, I'll lead by saying Adam Greenberg did shoot both Terminators, okay. both James Cameron Terminators. Um, his strategy seems to be to just wash the whole scene set with light in different creative ways that probably creates enough light to for them to shoot at night. Like there's a lot of layered lighting that if you you don't want to think too much about the, the practicality of these light sources, but it looks fantastic and it works really well in the, in a horror genre vampire movie where things should be a little smoky and eerie. And, you know, so there's a lot of scenes I'm trying to think of where they are. I think they're kind of near some railroad tracks at one point and it's him and may uh, Caleb and may, and there's light off in the distance that's kind of smoked up a little bit. It makes no sense whatsoever. Right. But it's such a great looking scene. It creates all this depth. And he's, I want to say he's walking towards it. So it really like cuts his profile nicely against the, so you got light there's in the background, backlight. but the yeah. smoke cuts the, cuts the profile. So it looks, still looks clear. It's just a really well shot movie, which is, uh, I mean, we're talking about Adam Greenberg, but Catherine Bigelow consistently incredible visual storyteller throughout her entire career uh no matter who she's working with on uh, as a cinematographer yeah. I, I find her even her her mediocre films look fantastic blue steel looks great amir mokri shot that beautiful she worked with great movie. cinematographers she likes yeah. long lenses she likes that mm-hmm. kind of atmosphere and density um she likes backlight in some ways i guess point point break is probably the most crazy wide angle lens movie that she did. I watched The Hurt Locker just last week, and like that movie is gorgeous. Like she's really something. She she's an amazing filmmaker. And um, well, it's a she works in different like different times of the day, and it almost seems to be consistent with the movie. 
Like, for instance, this is a nighttime movie, obviously. I mean, you have some daytime scenes, but this is pr- primarily a nighttime movie. Um, Strange or Strange Days also. Uh, uh, Blue Steel mostly at night. And even if it's day, she's shooting in Manhattan where there's just a skyscraper shading every shot. There's yeah. hardly, I don't know if there's any sun in that movie at all. But then you have Point Break, which is just lit. Yeah. There's some good night scenes in it, but man, it's we're talking about we're at the beach and surfing. We need the sun, you know. It's a very sun-kissed movie, as is uh, Love the Loveless, which we should talk about. Um, Near Dark is her first solo directorial effort, but she did make a movie called The Loveless with Willem Dafoe. Uh, wow, what year was that? Eighty-three. I can't remember what year it was now, but uh, she co-directed it with Monty Montgomery, which a lot of people listening might know as the cowboy from Mulholland Drive that that you know gives the cryptic message to uh justin thoreau's director t- character um that's a that's a pretty well lit movie and really beautifully shot too just like it feels like she was like they were like let's make a kenneth anger movie yeah. with a plot yeah. kind of a plot yeah and it's gonna it, we're gonna fetishize all this like these engines and leather and willem dafoe's face and body and uh, it's just a remark if you've never seen the loveless people uh, i mean i don't know the story is what it is I don't know. I can't hardly remember what it's about, but I can remember how it looked. And she just has this great history of making beautiful looking movies, not always picking great scripts, which is not the case here. I think that her and Eric Red did a great job. The script's incredible, which we can probably just start jumping into that as a as what we're really going to talk about. Walk through the movie, I suppose. But yeah, uh, in a sense, it's a um, it's a it's the story of a boy that falls in love with a girl and gets seduced into her outlaw family that's the other weird thing about it as a genre film is that there's a a kind of endangered species aspect you know maybe these are the last five uh, vampires that are left on the earth and they are these predators that just kind of like they're like coyotes or something they they're carrying they go from place Mm -hmm. to place from night to night stealing cars and hiding in the darkness and she meets this boy and uh there's a connection between the two of them and there's Lots of interesting hints that everything's not quite right. She looks to a star and says that light coming down from that star, that planet, the star is dead, but I'll be here by the time it, I'll still be here when it reaches the earth. And Mm -hmm. they have, um, and yet they begin to play with vampire iconography almost from the very beginning, because in addition to the blood sucking mosquito uh, in the first frame, uh, the one of the first places he takes her is to show her his horse and it's this white horse, and there's an old vampire legend that if you want to find the grave of a vampire, you take a white horse into the cemetery, and it won't step onto the grave of a vampire. So okay. they really cleverly take all of these old pieces of vampire lore, kind of transmute them into this more modern Western kind of, I don't know, idiom, and then mm-hmm. um, never say the word vampire in the entire film, which I think nope. is also pretty great. Nobody turns right? into bats. There are certain things that they can't do. They're almost like mm-hmm. blood junkies. Eternal blood junkies or something. Which, you know, Abel Ferreira oh, yeah, went the into that territory like very literally, what, probably about four years later? I can't remember. It was early 90s yeah. with uh, the addiction. And um, I, I, I like it better here. Yeah, it seems that their only superpower is not dying, right? That you can do. And they're I, strong. I, it's they're super strength. They're strong, true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it makes you wonder what would happen. They talk. There's a scene where Jesse and, and Severin are sitting at a table board and decide to play Russian roulette. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> there has to be a limit to uh, 
how they can be shot and still survive. Like they can't get their heads blown off, right? Probably not. But uh, it's cut kind of a funny head, cut off their heads or destroy their heart. That might not be good. That's so weird. it's a it's a tease. It's kind of a funny tease. I think that that moment because they're like, we're not going to show you what happens when they play Russian roulette. And, you know, you could decide, oh, well, when they do it, they just point it at their chest or whatever. But it's more like, I think it's more of a fun, like, we realize how silly this is and that there has to be limits, but we don't want to show you the limits. And we're kind of teasing, they're kind of teasing us with that. I think it's kind of funny. One of the things that really strikes me when I show this to classes is the first really dramatic reaction that, that you can hear in the audience is the moment where May wants Caleb to take her home because it's starting mm-hmm. to get light. And she's clearly anxious and concerned about being away from where she needs to be. We don't know she's a vampire yet, but she's, she's not comfortable. And he says, you're going to have to kiss me first before mm-hmm. I'm going to take you home. And I'm always amazed at the reaction that that gets from people, from you know, students sitting in the theater because it's such a transgression. It's mm-hmm. such a transactional bad move on his part and for me in a way it seals his fate it's the position yep. of fin of position of sin that he puts himself into that kind of gets him this nightmare uh and if he hadn't have done it done that if he had been a gentleman he maybe wouldn't have gotten himself into this pickle right and it's and what what it's the distinction here between this and what the horror tropes the the scream like, uh, you know, horror tropes that they're going to, you know, that we're all understand about slasher films and whatnot is that this isn't chase. This is a true transgression. He's being a creep period. There's no <laughs> yeah, question about it. Right. It's not, well, they had sex and that's the transgression, which is a questionable transgression. Like consensual sex is fine. You don't deserve to die for it. You don't deserve to be turned into a vampire for it, whatever it may be. In this case, it's kind of like, Corey. I mean, I like Caleb. He seems like an okay guy, but he's a he's a little bit of a creep. He gets he lets his uh, pants do the talking here, and he's going to pay for it a little bit. Now he doesn't pay for it fully, but because I don't know, maybe because we are kind of grossed out by his behavior, it leads us to believe he could be paying for it fully at some point. Maybe it creates I don't know. Maybe he'll become maybe about. he'll become one of the outlaws. Like maybe he is yeah. maybe he has it in him that he can become the kind of killer he needs to be to survive. Yeah. Which is the of course the irony is that he that becomes his dilemma all through is that he's incapable of killing. In that sense, we're kind of back to interview with a vampire in mm-hmm. the way that um Lestat keeps trying to get Louis to kill and Louis doesn't want to kill and Louis doesn't like the idea of having to, to be a killer. So there's right. some touchstones there as well. But uh, clearly she does bite him in the neck and then uh, runs away, leaving him to stagger across a field as the sun comes up and he starts to smoke, which is the mm-hmm. first kind of moment where we're like, okay, we're, we've definitely crossed into the supernatural threshold. Um, his yeah. family sees him from the distance coming across the field. And it's a great shot because not only is he physically smoking, but his boots are kicking up so much dust and it's backlit in such a way that it really creates the illusion of this guy about to burst into flame. And he's he's screwed. We know that he's he's in big trouble. Thankfully, an RV comes bearing down on him and grabs him and snatches him into the into the RV, which is where we then see him with May's family of creation. Right, but before we get inside the RV, I think we we can return to the the Bigelow's penchant for long lenses here, because the shot of him coming approaching the uh, family, he appears to be almost home. 
Like I've always think it's kind of interesting when the RV comes around and cuts them off. Yeah. Um, it becomes clear once the RV cuts the the frame that you know, oh, he's much farther away than he looked, but he looked like he was almost home. And it's like a you get this little visceral reaction like, yeah. oh, you almost made it, even though he didn't almost make it. And I think that's a, a choice with the cinematography. And you get a little bit of haze. They threw in a little heat vapor between or whatever. Yeah. All these things to give this illusion of he's right on the doorstep, you know. And I think that's fantastic. I mean, whether it was intentional or not, I think it probably was. But I think so. But this is where, so we're, now we're introduced to Sarah and Loy. Is that dad's name? Loy? But he's this kind of dad, right? Yeah. And I think these are these are interesting characters because they kind of make a point not to make them too interesting or flesh them out really at all they're just sister and dad and they just love caleb and what i find funny i kind of chuckle because um it is so simplified is that dad's really only like interest is where's my boy and what are you going to do to help me if you're a law enforcement officer? And that's it. That's all he seems to care about. I, I love that. Kind of love the simplicity of it. And help me both give, times help me he give interacts my, with the cop. Help me give my cow a shot. He's yeah. A, he's, well, a, he's, a, that, yeah. He's, a, he's a rancher and vet or dairyman or all of those. I don't know. Something exactly. like that. <laughs> but I, I just let he, he interacts with the lawman. What are you doing to find my boy? And then he interacts with one other one. What are you doing about it? And that's all he cares. I just, I don't know why I chuckle at that because the acting is good. He did, he gives a, enough of a performance that I think he's a warm, caring guy. I don't think he's like a cipher or anything. Yet there's not much to him other than that. And I think it's kind of great a for Tim a genre Thomas piece like fan? this to keep it lean. I don't know. Oh, what do, what do you? Yeah. So not, Tim not, Thomerson, who plays that role, who he was a stand-up comic in Los Angeles. He's in the movie oh, Trancers. He plays the inimitable Jack Death in the Empire Trancers and Trancers 2 and had other lots of um, lots of TV roles. And uh, and I remember meeting him uh, on an on audition once and he was super funny and really nice and just like a really, really great guy. So he is a funny piece of casting from an like 80s pop culture oh, God. perspective. I'm looking at his IMDb <laughs> real quick and the one movie that pops up that I've seen... He I mean, was, was Ghoulies, too, I think, wasn't well, he? Well, he was in Remember My Name, the Alan Rudolph, that crazy Alan Rudolph movie with Geraldine Chaplin. Yeah. Oh, that, that movie <laughs> that movie is something. Anyway, I just don't, I can't remember who he was in that. But So uh, you may be just a something. little young because he was, it seemed like mm-hmm. he was, you know, he was everywhere. He'd show up on Night Court and he'd show up on, it seemed yeah. like he was, he was. He was well, he's familiar, guys. but I, you know, yeah. you asked me if I'm a fan. I okay. can't it's say. Right. I mean, Some are. There are. They're, they're out there. They're out there. There's there's trancers and, and Ghoulies fans that are oh sure. Fans. Yeah, I was never. I couldn't. I couldn't watch Ghoulies, you know, and trancers and stuff. It's something I didn't come to. <laughs> uh, so, I suppose we. It's interesting. We when we do finally meet the meet the family. Um, initially, we they're just these threatening creatures. But then once we go. Mm-hmm. Dad's on the run, trying to on the hunt, trying to find him, and then we cut back, and we get all the the we get all of the introductions to the characters uh, as they before they go and grab a new vehicle, and that's where we sort of name check everybody: Jesse and Diamondback, Severin and Homer, mm-hmm. and and Severin is pretty much he'd just as soon kill Caleb right now, and Homer doesn't seem to be particularly interested either, but because she has been she's bit him, but not killed him. 
they feel all frustrated and kind of screwed because they don't want somebody else in their group. I'm not exactly sure why, but they don't. And then, but she throws herself in between his body and the family. She wants him clearly, and she's gonna, you know. So is this a a, a the code of honor among vampires kind of thing where, hey, if one of us wants this new guy, uh, we kind of have to kind of have to go have with him. it. I think so. Or is it the fact that he's bitten and is turning? They're kind of responsible for him. Is that is Can that it be also? Both? Could be both, because I I'm not sure how much they would care. Like if if, if and, you know if push comes to shove, as we see throughout the movie, there is still the threat of them just killing him. So it's not as if they're like, well, we'll never kill you. Like no, you've got to you got to prove yourself. Doing your they thing give, or there's a time or limit going to immediately kill you. kicked in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But right away, it's like okay, he's already turning. I guess there's some kind of code or maybe an instinct to the way a, a herd of animals has the instinct to take care of each other, you know, or whatever. Uh, Perhaps that's it. It's interesting though, and, and and their their motivation for going to get him in the first place is simply like we can't let this guy like go talk to any normies, right? Like we just can't have. He's going to burst into flame. Though. I that's got the bitten. Other part of it. He's going to and I'm on fire, and I, clearly something crazy. And this girl did this to me. Therefore, let's go looking. Somebody needs to go looking for these people. That's simply the the motivation, right? Because I I have often wondered why do they even go get him? Yeah. I think there's a lot of those moments where you kind of wonder why exactly is this? I think there's two thoughts. Mm -hmm. One is why is this moving forward? And aren't they better at knowing when the sun is going to come up, given how long they've been doing this? (laughs) And so I know that the students sometimes when they watch the movie, because we seem like we live in a way more literal age now than we used to, they can't kind of enter into the weird dreamlike quality of the movie and and if you scratch at it, there's definitely some, I suppose, I guess we'd call them logical questions that pop up. Yeah. I mean, I can kind of understand. They're, they're often, you know, in this, what we're seeing in this movie, the, the events of the film, they're often on the run, in trouble. Like, you can't always be right on time, you know, when that happens. But, uh, and then a lot of the sunlight issues become, I mean, in her case, she was about, she take me home, the sun's about to come up, and then the biting happens. That means the clock is ticking. Yeah. And they kind of didn't, you know, for whatever their motivation may be, they had no choice but to drive out in the sunlight, you know, and grab them. Uh, but, yeah, I don't care. You know, I don't care about any of that personally. Well, I feel like but when they... when they It's, st- it's kind of interesting to ask the question. It doesn't it doesn't uh, uh, diminish the film to me in any way. Once Severin plants the... Or um, Jesse plants the flag and sort of says, okay, you've got, you got two days mm-hmm. to prove yourself or else we're going to kill you. And then they burn up the RV and Severin says, remember that fire we started in Chicago? For me, it's kind of like, okay, it's it's pretty playful. It's really kind uh-huh. of just setting all this stuff up for us. And you either want to go with it or not. Like, you can't fight this movie. If you fight this movie, it's not going to be any fun because it really right. is this kind of rollicking fever dream of a movie. Yeah, and that's, I mean, when he says that, and that's like 80 yard in, you know, like they they went out of their way to have that line in there, and it's silly. It's just silly. I don't care. I love it. It's just, but it's unquestionably silly but thing to say. it's one of several And the whole, like, let's just say they, I was in the Civil War and my side lost. My side lost, yeah. Kind of, it's one of those. Yeah. There's a bunch of those just, that say these guys are old and they've been knocking around the country mm-hmm. for a hundred years. 
which I think and is I okay. love that line he has later because I kind of believe him when he goes to the, that old man yeah recognizes him right and he says I, I make my way through here every 50 years or so which would have been like I could totally picture him being at that place when it was like 1930s uh, uh it happened one night, you know, roadside yeah. motel, and then pulling in in a Packard or whatever. Yeah. And uh, it looks just um, the same. That old man was young then. Yeah, the and old all man that. was young. Yeah, it's, I love that idea. But, you know, all those things are, are, a bit, are jokes, a little bit of humor added in, but also giving you this look at the scope of this thing. Look at the scope of, of the vampire's life. And we're talking about this infinity, eternity that we're going to spend. But also placing us in history with them, and it's just fun, you know. Yeah, which is kind of like again to draw back to that howling analogy, is that the kind of jokes that exist in this movie are really sly, kind of like and postmodern and referential, and you kind of have to, you kind of have to bring something to the situation to get the joke, versus mm-hmm. the Lost Boys jokes, which are just you know, very obvious. You don't need to bring anything to the table to get these jokes. And and similar, I think, with American Werewolf in London. The the kind of humor that exists in American Werewolf in London is very different than in The Howling, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. it's just to carry that analogy one more step in terms of humor. Right. So, okay, so they they get him in the van. It's, it's okay, the clock's ticking for you, boy. You better start killing, just doing your part. Um. He and May, you know, May is his, she's the only one that gives a shit about him. So she's the one that's going to explain to him, you know, the rules. And uh, But he ditches her. He leaves her on the tracks. He's, he's not even, right. you know, he doesn't, he's, he's just, oh, yeah. it's so crazy how fast he turns. He's like, I got to get home. I got to get home. I got to get home. And she's just oh, I, like, okay. All right. It would be hard to believe. I, I always feel for him here because it would be hard to believe any, despite what he's seen, still kind of hard to believe this is real. And you just want to go home. Like, there's never a time where I'm not. You just want a candy bar. I want to go home and get a candy bar. We'll see how that works for you. Okay, just as a quick aside. Tell me, in the 80s, how many movies have a scene where somebody buys a candy bar out of one of those? I swear to God it happened on almost every action movie. how often is it a Zagnut? Does he buy a Zagnut? It's usually a Zagnut or something. Or a zero bar. 48 hours, it's a Zagnut. Is it a Zagnut in... uh, in this, Reggie, here's your here's your breakfast, Reggie. Yeah, he has it. Is this is this a Zagnut, <laughs> or is it a Might zero? Be. I can't remember. Or Clark I can't remember, Bar. But, uh, Clark Bar is the other what's one. The, what's the other? Uh, there was another '80s action movie I saw recently where they got a a candy bar out of one of those machines. I'm like, what was it with everybody in the candy bars? I guess that was a common stopgap, like the Snickers candy bars before the Snickers ad so campaign. Cheap. It was, that you could really oh, yeah. make it would make money to spend all that money on that vending machine, but still be able to dispense enough candy bars that it makes sense. Like, do they even have candy bar machines now that are just like a pull it and oh, it yeah. jumps it, drops it out? Oh, not the pull it, no, but right? The, yeah, it's a vending machines with yeah. candy bars all over the place. Still, much, but yeah. yeah, but it's much more elaborate situation. You can put your, you can like use your Apple cards. Yeah, Apple Pay. Yeah, no, there's there's one at my job that has a touch, touch the card to it it's that's how far they've gone um but there's still the same candy bars in there there's still andy caps hot fries in there mitch it's <laughs> candy caps the vending <laughs> the vending machines haven't changed that much the contents are still pretty close how great is this um, cop that rousts him in the bus station with the crew cut and um and the ble- and the bloody hand that's wrapped oh, that cop yeah. is such a hard ass it's amazing that guy's that guy is so good in that in that scene because you just don't feel like he's gonna 
cut Caleb a break at all. Caleb just right. needs a couple extra bucks to get that bus ticket, and this guy is not going to give him anything. And then there's a great in-joke or a great joke where Caleb looks down and sees that this guy's got a bloody hand. And it's just so fun because you know exactly what Caleb is thinking, which is that that bloody hand looks way better than this candy bar that I can't get down. And it's another laugh that the audience brings to the mix because of something that they understand that's not inherent in in the situation. Uh, It's, again, sly humor that makes that scene really work. And this actor, his name's Troy Evans, that plays this cop, in everything. He was in so much stuff, like in the late 80s and early 90s, including Twin Peaks and... Uh, just yeah, lo- love him. He could be. He seems like he's about to be funny all the time. He's one of those guys that's like, clearly this guy's more of a comedic actor. I think just by nature, but he could still play. It almost plays he's better scary here because he is so scary in yeah. this it, that it seems a little like off, more off putting or I don't, maybe that's not the word, but uh, it's like this guy. God, leave him alone. Like it's just a kid that kind of. Doesn't feel so good. Yeah, like, this guy just I hangs around bus stations fucking with people. It's terrible. Terrible. Yeah, and the, and then you juxtapose that with the truck driver you get later. Who's so who nice. Just ask him. So nice and understanding and says, are you are you running from home? And they're like, yeah. And he goes, hey, I understand. Home can be bad sometimes. It's yeah. like, yeah, cop. Why don't you think yeah, about cop. that before you harass kids in the truck train station? Jerk. I want to point out that, so thankfully this guy we have a nice reversal and he actually gives him the money and says, go home. Caleb gets on the bus and um, there's a music cue on that bus that reminds me a lot of Giorgio Moroder's cat people score. And I just wanted to pause right here and talk about Tangerine Dream because this score is so amazing. Yeah, this is a, this is a regular rotation writing music for me. Like um, the thing I've been working on lately is a lot of road action, stuff going on and i'm like you know what's what sound real good here is is near dark yeah any tangerine dream really but near dark more so because it's unlike some of their other scores it's more straight ahead and like look this is a gritty kind of countrified movie it's interesting to bring these german electronic musicians on to score this movie set in like rural texas and kansas well there's a lot of four on the floor rock rock beats they throw a lot more guitars in here i mean they they weren't averse to using guitars. I think this was like a, a slimmed down version of Tangerine Dream because Tangerine Dream was basically Edgar Froese and whoever else he brought in the band, whatever right. he needed. So I believe this was a trio, just a trio. So he must have been Froese on all the, you know, I'm, I'm betting he had laid down the bass lines electronically, did all the synthy stuff, had a guitar player in there. Um, maybe there might even, I'm trying to th- I think, I think it was only a trio a lot, on Sorcerer, think... too. There was just th- just three. Yeah. There's other times where there'll be like th- four or five guys in Tangerine uh-huh. Dream. But um, Sorcerer, that was all I was going to say, is like just to, to compare. Sorcerer I'll listen to while I'm writing, too, but it's um, it's much more... There's almost no know, rhythm. ...airy it's, and yeah, creepy. It's, yeah, and, yeah, yeah it's, it's... For sure. And same with um, same with Thief. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, they did Michael Mann's Thief. That You know, Sorcerer was their first score. But Sorcerer was not a popular film, and not a lot of people saw Sorcerer, and I don't think they really made their mark as scoring. I'm just going to say this. No, I think that's true. Maybe it's not true. I think Thief is where they really made their mark, and Thief is the is the much easier LP to find out in the wild than Sorcerer. I mean, I don't think it's hard to find Sorcerer necessarily, 
but um, Thief is real easy to find. <laughs> like right. if you want sure, a copy right. of Thief, you're going to find it. Um, this one I've never seen on vinyl. I don't think uh, it I'm is not on sure. vinyl. I don't think it ever came out oh. on vinyl. It just came out. No, on really. Yeah. You might be right. Um, I think that wasn't the same trip Blade Runner. I can't remember. Like they had this weird. Sometimes the s- soundtracks wouldn't come out for whatever reason. Well, yeah, the Blade Runner it, came it, out it by that New American Orchestra, which the it never right, right. the Vangelis thing never really came out um, because mm-hmm. it was a re-recording that came out for Blade Runner. But yeah, for years. But anyway, I'm a, I'm a big. Tangerine Dream fan. Uh, Edgar Froese, did, he passed away eight years ago or so, but they still exist. He he apparently cre- created a, you know, um, he curated the band that would take over for him once he passed away. So they still exist and with his, you know, approval, so to speak. But uh, well, once Caleb, I mean, I just I love their I love their albums. They're straight albums, too. They're anyway. Yeah. And and, uh, and lest we not forget the soundtrack for The Keep. Michael Mann's movie, which has yeah. got pipe organs did and they crazy did, shit wait, in it. Who did Manhunter? Did no Manhunter was Man- was not was not Tangerine Dream. No, but it was who like did? Red, I can't remember. What was it Red? Not Red Dwarf, but Red. There was this. It was there four or five so- songs by this band called Red Something, and then Shriek Back three three Shriek Back songs and several other Needle Drops. Oh, okay, all through it. So uh, mostly Needle Drops. No, I mean, there's, there's five there's five pieces that were composed. By this electronic band, specifically for Manhunter, the Reds, the Reds, hmm. yeah, and then Michael Rabini. Those, that's, those are the credits. Hey, this is a Patreon episode. We have the we can we can get off track. Yeah, that's time. right. But we'll get <laughs> back on like track. These are looser. Yeah, uh, let's get back on because track. Because I he I wanted to just mention he gets off of the bus and then we get uh, through a series just three shots connected by wipes of him walking across streets and railroad tracks and gets his way back to May mm-hmm. where she's standing there waiting as if she knew he would come back, that there was, that there was nowhere he was going to go. And, uh, and no matter what he tried to do, he was going to wind up right back where he is. Because. And, yes, because. She did this too. Yeah. That's what I always, how I always read this is she did the exact same thing. She knows exactly what's going to happen, and you might even be able to go down the line of all these people. It almost seems like May is the soft, kind vampire that's only been a vampire for so long. Mm-hmm. She's probably going to be Diamondback in fifty years, right? Like she, the, they're all going to get hard, and they're all going to get you know. But you can imagine Jesse was probably well. I mean, I guess he's supposed to be the age he is, right? I guess you're all supposed to be the age you are. Seeing as Homer's still a kid, I, I was going to say, but, but Homer still, might have been. I a, think you're right. A, a, She's a newer soul, probably, and she is yeah. not hardened yet. And no, that makes sense. And they were all scared when it happened. All of them. I don't. Severin was scared too. You know, they're certainly you have to reconcile with your fate as a vampire, and you just go for it. You become a bloodthirsty killer, and that's all there uh, is you can really do. And that's what, you know, that that draws, you know, creates this conflict with Caleb, who really, really, really doesn't want to become that. And we don't want him to become that. And therefore, that's what that's a lot of the dramatic drive of the movie is like, will he or won't he become one of them? And I feel like there was a period of time where maybe he would have like had this movie been made in a different time. Maybe he would have become one. Maybe that would have been the movie. But I think I think the um, kind of the promise of the romance here is what could tell you that it's not going to be that way. Well, there does seem right? to be a trend in a lot of 1980s movies 
where the plot has to do with the innocent being drawn, the sheep being entered, in, brought into the wolf pack and mm-hmm. ultimately not becoming a wolf. If this had been mm-hmm. made in the 70s, you know, it's arguable that maybe he, he would have joined up with the anarchists. He might For have sure. joined up with the people that were trying to break the system. But there's mm-hmm. something conservative inherently in these late 80s tales of the innocent joining the crew, and they ultimately don't. And in a way, Point Blank is the same movie, or Point Break is the same is the same film. It's an undercover story, but it's still about this guy, whether he will join, whether he will come over to the fold because he's being seduced into the fold by, by Patrick Swayze, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because in that movie, um, not that we're doing an episode about Point Break, but in that movie, he's not seduced into the criminal life. He's seduced into the excess of, of extremists, yeah, you know, adrenaline of adrenaline. Junkie. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think he cares. I mean, he, does, he doesn't seem to be tempted into becoming a criminal, but he is, like, buying into the rest the of freedom, it. The freedom, the lifestyle. He does, and, and he is a part of it. At the end, the what is the first question? He goes, you still surfing every day. You know, and it's like right. he did buy into it 100%. Right. So. That movie kind of has its cake and eats it too in that way, but I don't believe that they ever even tease at the fact that he's going to become a criminal. Right. Like I don't think it. I think right. it's different in Fair that enough. sense. Fair enough. We're here. We're here. We're right in the. He's kind of got no choice. Like for most of the you're movie, he's got no choice but to become one not. of them. Yeah. Right. It's just a matter of time. And um, I'll be honest. There's been some times where, not that we're jumping to the end of the movie, but there have been times where I've thought the resolution of this movie was a little easy. Oh, you think? But oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, but I'm okay with it. The difference being, like, sure, it's easy, but is it is it really a cheat? I don't know if it's a cheat. I, I think it's. I think it's a B movie. I think it really mm-hmm. wears its Sam Fuller B movie kind of punch, 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 punch to the end, you know, thing. And so it doesn't bother me. That's what I love about so many of those kind of lower budget eighty movies, like. I, is the is the hidden too easily resolved? Well, it's it's another one of those crazy B movies, and so yeah, it's kind of easy how it ends. But these there was a whole um, there was a whole truck of these films that came out in that period that was that made no they had no pretense about them. Like mm. I don't think this movie's pretentious. I know people have argued that it is, but I don't think it's pretentious mm. at all. I think it's pulp. I think it's good, yeah. fast, hard B Sam Fuller pulp. And and here's like you know I'm sure you and I have had this conversation before, and I think it's something that I I feel like people don't understand about what creates a successful story, and specifically we'll just say a successful film story because uh you know cinematic storytelling there's so many rules you know that are kind of inherent is that it has to be commercial and to a certain extent most of the time and so forth. But really what it comes down to, to me, is like, what do you t- what, what's the story you're telling? What, did you, what are you trying to accomplish? And what did you promise me at the beginning? When, I'm, when you, we get to the end of the first act of a movie, I feel like I've been promised something, right? Even in the marketing sometimes, right, it's like, for sure. you're promising me something. Do, do, you, do you fulfill your promise or not? That Whether you do it in a kind of cheap way... Or easy way doesn't matter to me as long as you're being honest and you're and you, I go that's what you promised me and I do think despite this movie being a bloodthirsty vampire movie at heart it's a romance and I feel like 
whatever they can do to make sure these two end up together and are fine in the end, I'm, I kind of, that's what I'm rooting for, really. Yeah. And you kind of promised it to me at the beginning. Um, and so much of that promise is in the performances uh, and there's lovely little scenes between the two of them at the beginning. So to me, it's like, like you said earlier, we don't even know it's a vampire movie till we're well into the romance, right? Right. Even if there's iffy things about the romance, like his, you know, come on. Um, in the end, if if they became vampires and they were bloodthirsty and it was like, ah, oh, big ending, he turned out he he's one of them forever. I don't think it would have fulfilled its promise. Yeah. And I would have felt, I felt that's easier and cheaper. And you're trying to get a cheap thrill and a cynical thrill out of your movie, you know, by the end. So to me, it's like, okay, fine. The bloodletting, the, uh, all that stuff's a little silly and a little easy, but it's, you're accomplishing what you've set out to accomplish. And that's what makes a good story. Well, in the end of the day, and he that's why it's okay with me. the love in the sense that he never becomes the killer. And that's the thing right. that keeps him pure. Like, and he's mm-hmm. able to redeem her and save her by that and through that purity. Because, you know, in this next sequence, we watch everybody else go out and kill somebody. Bill Paxton gets a couple of girls and and yeah. Diamondback and Severin get pick up a hitchhiker only to find that they're going to be mugged by the hitchhiker's accomplices and they kill all those guys. And so we're kind of having transgressive thrills, enjoying the fact that the people that in that instance, they deserved it. Um, we watch Homer yeah, bite somebody at the neck who comes over to help the poor little kid, you know, with his wrecked bike. That's cruel. But so it goes back and it oscillates between charming Bill Paxton and a couple of girls and we don't see what he does to them. And little Homer biting a guy in the neck. It's like, OK, that's how he survives. And then these assholes try to roust Severin and Dime, or, uh, Jesse and Diamondback and they they get a little poetic justice. But this- well, isn't it interesting that that's they choose to have one instance be more like these guys deserved it anyway, where everyone else is 100% innocent. Like right. the truck driver, the girls, everyone, none of them did anything to deserve this, and it's a tragedy that they were killed this way. Wherein, why do does Jesse and, and Diamondback get to be the badasses that actually like get to kill? We don't, and other things though, we don't see it, right? So we don't see them kill these guys, right? Right, Am I right. No, we just see something? them molest her, and then and then they turn the radio up, and, and so the is music is comes. that like a twisted, transgressive? Like, yes, it's a thrill. Um, these guys deserve it, but you won't even get to see that. Right. You only see the innocent people but, get killed. But we know but they're going to get it, so we get a we get a thrill out of the fact that we know where it's headed. Whereas we're shocked yeah. when Homer bites the guy. We didn't know how, we don't know how that's going to exactly work. Then we see it. Um, Bill, Bill Paxton and the two gir- Severin and the two girls. It's just all high, 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 and big smiles. And is that Robin Givens, by the way? Is no, that's um, she is somebody, but I can't remember. Okay. Um, um, and and then uh, so going. with him, it's charm. It's all charming. And then we get this transgressive thing. And then we get to the truck driver who's been really sweet and nice to them. And she's urging Caleb to kill this guy. And and Caleb just can't bring himself to do it. And so she ultimately bites him. Uh, and we cut away from it, too. We don't see the whole murder. Then we cut to her feeding Caleb from her veins uh, because that's the way that that's the way that she's going to keep him alive until he finally kills somebody. So, yeah. yeah, it's I mean, it's a, gr- a really interesting mo- it's a montage. I mean, it's, it's not, but it is. It's a series of, of all working the same idea of how each one of these particular members of this family uh, hunt and individually, not as a group. That's the other thing is like we're saving the, mm-hmm. how they hunt as a group for the big set piece later on in the, the movie. Big, the big one set of piece. the one of the biggest in a way like this one. Like when you when somebody asks you the question of like. 
What's like a central set piece of a movie or a sequence or some? It just yeah. it, this is one of the big a ones that I'll stopper. say. This is it's real showstopper. Yeah. It's amazing the audacity to do this. Yeah, which we're gonna get um, to in just a second. Um, yeah, we're gonna because I was just gonna say that I feel like um, you know with this with this climax to this montage of the two of them standing in front of these big oil derrick oil wells that are pumping and then she's pumping mm-hmm. her blood into him and there's light heat lightning blasting in the background creating beautiful backlight and it is just so completely baroque and cinematic and gorgeous and then she has to pull away from him because he's drinking too much of her blood and he lays there on the ground and kind of grins at her and it's a great mm-hmm. moment because you're like holy shit maybe he actually is evil enough that he's going to become a vampire because he is really careless and reckless. And then she does come back and I think he comes back, she comes back and and kisses him. So I think it's still, I can't remember Mm -hmm. whether it escalates or not, but he's definitely the, for me, the, that sequence is left with this, this sense that, Oh, maybe he's really going to turn into a vampire. And it's kind of like the the first dose of heroin scene in a movie or something like where it's, you could think about it as being evil, but really what it's happening is it's that bliss of that first fix, you know, like yeah. fix isn't even the right word if it's your first time. It's like, wow, this is the most, and I, and but you wor- maybe you're not worried as much about him being evil as being like, I got to chase, he's going to have to chase the dragon now. Yeah. Like what's that going to do to him ultimately? It's not as much a, is he evil inherently? Is he going to have to be evil to chase that? you know, feeling again. Yeah. So there's a lot you can read into that moment. And then th- what's great is that you go from that to dad and Sarah in the diner and, you know, realizing they're going in the wrong direction. And so they're going to turn around. So we've, we've reestablished that they're still looking for him. And then mm-hmm. we go to this box car and Caleb is told in no uncertain terms that he's got to kill tonight or he's, or yeah. this is, or, and so that's the setup for, this crazy set piece, which begins, by the way, with another one of your unmotivated source lights as they come up to the oh, crest. It's one of the best, though. So gorgeous, right? <laughs> they come up to the oh, crest the... of the hill, and there's these silhouettes, and there's this crazy backlight coming out of who knows where that just lights them up on the edge of this of this hill as they come down towards this roadhouse. Yeah, it's it's the money shot of the movie. It's like it's a great, you know, because it's like this could be if you took this image and this o- image only from the movie, that's the one you'd pick. Like, right? For sure. It's like. This says so much about the movie, and it gets to be this beautiful lead-in to the big, big moments of the movie, or the big sequence of the movie. And uh, so, yeah, they, so they get to the roadhouse, and um, it's funny. This, is the, this isn't the first time, you know, someone who saw Terminator and Terminator 2 before he saw Near Dark, as I did. The similarities, there's all these similarities uh, weirdly, with this movie and those movies. And oh, does this remind you one of Terminator of being, 2 when he goes in with the, and rouses well, the bikers? It's the exact same guy. Yeah. It's literally it the guy. same well, you're guy. You're right, it is that yeah, guy. Yeah, that it? he takes his clothes. Um, yeah, so funny. there's that, but there's other things like with the truck later and just all right, these things the that make you go, sure. this, this could be a James Cameron movie. I think it doesn't quite look like a James Cameron movie in some ways, but I think she does have her, she has her signature style of composition and so on. But with the same cinematographer and a lot of the same people, and this does feel like I, I, I do kind of feel like did Cameron go? Hey, I'm going to make a little comment. I'm going to reach back to Near Dark for a second, just in this little scene in Terminator Two where he goes and gets it. Like I'm going to literally oh, yeah. cast the same exact guy playing pool. Like they're doing the same thing. That's I true. Think. You're right. It's really right. weird. I'm, <laughs> but, I'm uh, stunned by the fact that this set piece has four complete songs in it. 
Four ballsy. total needle drops. Four records play yep. over the course of this. It's it's just yep. amazing. The ultimate jukebox, like literal jukebox <laughs> scene. It's like it's the got jukebox. the cramps and George Strait on it. And, and James Legro is <laughs> he? He doesn't leave. He doesn't leave the scene because he's like I'm. I I got my songs. My songs are coming up. You know? um, <laughs> he wants but, to hear uh, that George Strait like song. <laughs> somebody put George Strait and like it's a nice variety. You know, it's, it's like sure it is. makes it kind of go. I'm not like the biggest George Strait fan or anything, but it's like. I love a diverse jukebox in a bar, yeah, though. It's kind of like, man, like this place fix. is all right. I don't know what who it is, yeah. but it sounds like The Fix. I don't either. And then the second one is, um, uh, shit, what's the second one? I don't, you know what? This the second one just jumped out of my head. A uh, third one's by the trivia, Fever by the Cramps, and the fourth one is is the George oh, right. Strait song. But the second one, oh, oh yeah, I can't think of, uh, anyway. Um, but yeah, like the fact that they just slaughter one person after another and toy with them and toy with Caleb. And Caleb gets to demonstrate his super strength and gets shot and doesn't die. And there's this kind of glee to the whole scene where it's like, oh, my God, it's really terrifying. And they really fuck up these poor people. And at the same time, it's really fun. It is, it's one of the greatest, most transgressive horror movie sequences in mm-hmm. any horror film ever made anywhere. And in some ways, I think that this movie lives and dies by this, by this set piece. Like, this is the thing. No, this is the thing that's terrifying. In a lot of ways, it does. And and I'll say, you know, like the parts of like Homer's indifference to it all. And it almost seems like he's kind of putting on a show of being indifferent. Yeah. Like he seems like a kid. He really does play the kid role uh, here because he's like, oh, they're killing somebody. Oh, do, do, do. I'm singing the song. It almost feels like he's putting on putting that on a little bit. But Severin killing the bartender. It disturbs me a little. So, like, it's fun and funny, and it's like, okay, a few people get killed, but it's done in a movie sort of way. And then there's, like, that moment where he cuts his throat with a spur, and it's kind of weirdly quiet, and and he does, like, four swipes, and you get one shot of the neck opening and all this, and it's just like... Ah, oh, that's so. That's kind of disturbing, and oh, it works. Yeah. I like it that it's disturbing. It's because pretty it's disturbing the when they kill the waitress too, and, and the waitress too. So it's like goes scary. from disturbing to fun and back and waves around yeah. and um, jokes about you having trouble with your hog leg with the shotgun and all these jokes are happening. And then right after he makes this joke, he kills this guy in such a like crazy way. And, and I don't know, it just works so well. And then you got poor James Legro is in the back of the bar. <laughs> And he's so <laughs> terrified, and he's so young. Yeah, you know, it's just like he's a teen. I think he's just credited as teenager in bar or something, and that's what he is, you know. And then he gets she kind of toys with him, which is interesting about May, right? Because it's May. She brings him we a guy. Like, her. like I, guess the, I guess there's no, no other girls in the in the in the roadhouse now because they've killed the waitress. But he's like, this mm-hmm. one's for you, Caleb, and it's like. <sighs> It's just there's something weirdly homoerotic about it, you know? She's going to yeah. give him a guy, not well, give him a girl. Well, the fact that she dances with him first means yeah. that she's kind of toying with him. So she's got she's got at least a hint of that t- twisted, sadistic thing, you know, outside of killing people. But I, there's one thing where it's like, understandable, you're a vampire. you got to kill people. Make it quick. Get their blood. Go. Um, there's the toying around thing that's a whole other story, and she's kind of doing it with him. And it's, it's a little bit like... Hmm, I kind of liked May, but you can see that the twistedness is creeping into her now. So here's my question for you based on all of that. Like, so this movie, as we said earlier, came out at a point where nobody really got to see it. It got dumped onto the market. It came and went really fast. If it had had all the marketing in the world behind it, right? 
and they mm-hmm. released it. It's the same year as the Lost Boys, which everybody's just having a grand old time with. I don't know whether this movie would have made any money anyway. I'm afraid that this sequence would have just stopped audiences dead in their like tracks. Walkouts. Yeah, well, I, walkouts. If not walkouts, it would have just been. It would have just put them off in such a way that yeah. it it maybe never quite recovers from its ruthlessness. I don't mm-hmm. know. No, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's it's likely this was this was that bound to be cult at best. I think, uh, but that's one of the things that makes it great. That was a pretty uncompromising film, you know. Like, I think they thought, "Oh, well, we have a commercial idea behind it," but it doesn't seem like they really intend intend for it to be overly commercial. Outside of having a, a love conquers all kind of ending, right? Maybe they thought that was enough. Maybe at the end, maybe. Like, well, or, you know what? maybe the hitcher made enough money that they were like, "Well, Eric Red made one mean movie; he can make another mean movie." I really don't know. Again, though, that movie, it's been a while since I've seen The Hitcher, so I could be wrong. That movie is so lean and mean and straightforward. I feel like you just hurtle through that movie and then it's over. This one, you wallow, you have to wallow in some yeah, of this stuff. Like you're the right. scene. You're right. Again, back to the scene. They're telling you to sit down and listen to four songs while all this is going on. That's a lot to ask of an yeah. audience. Yeah, that's true. So I don't know, man. I mean, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I, I don't know how this would have worked out back then. But you know, Blue Velvet made made some money, and it's true. It's, it, like around That's the time, true. you just kind of never knew at the time. It's whatever caught on for whatever reason back then. Nowadays, everything seems so market researched and specific. What year that, was Blue Velvet? Eighty six. Eighty six. Yeah. And so, Wild at Heart Which is was funny because eighty eight. Also, ninety. Ninety. I think it might have been at eighty nine can, and then ninety right uh, was its actual release i'm not sure right won the palm d'or in one of those two years another lovers on the violent lovers on the run movie while we're very on, violent again on the yeah. topic um hey look yeah uh, no i guess we'll get on i was going to ask a question about Catherine. A, a kind of fun question a little brain teaser make you think of i think i'm positing this i think Catherine bigelow is the master of the squib okay think through her movies she loves these big splashy squibs. Like when people get shot, a she likes to shoot those and she likes to shoot squibs in slow mo. Right. So you get the big, but she loved big bags of. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Have you noticed that about her? Like, there's some really great ones uh, in blue in blue steel as well. Oh, where blue it's just steel like, is God, crazy. Jesus, yeah. the the shirt just explodes and all this blood kind of pours out. And when Anthony Kiedis shoots himself in the foot and point break, I always think about that yeah, one because it's like, yeah. there's not that much blood in a foot. Yeah. <laughs> like, she's, she's great. But, uh, she's like, she's check and paw Walter Hill territory. She's really with, with an art house yeah. sensibility. It's yeah. like really bizarre. Would not say that I guess peck and paw, peck and paw sometimes had an art house sensibility. Yeah, peck uh, and paw did. Films, he, but, he was a but, theater classic, classical theater guy. You know, never forget yeah. how much he references Greek plays and things in his work. But yeah. yeah, I don't know. I just was thinking about. I, I'm kind of fascinated with squibs, and I don't feel one of the reasons is because they don't use them anymore, which is really disappointing. Yeah, that's true. Um, I love I love the fakey looking big splashy gunshots and things like that. But and Walter Hill did. Uh, Walter did them too. But uh, anyway. Anyway, just just an aside. I was thinking about more of when we have the siege. Yeah, well, at the that's, hotel, yeah, that's great. So that's where they wind where up. Going, they wind up next um, because Jamie the Gross runs away. Uh, they're furious with everybody, with May and with 
Caleb because now this guy is going to go tell the cops, which sure enough, he does. And they managed to track them down to that motel that we just talked about. And um, mm-hmm. the Kansas Highway Patrol opens up with um, all sorts of weapons. And the genius, of course, the gimmick of the scene is it's during the day. They're hiding in the hotel room or the motel room and the light. It's not the bullets that are dangerous, but it's the streaks of light that get put in the walls that threaten to burn the vampires. And it's really genius. It's just a fine, fine idea. It's brilliant. It doesn't make much sense. The sun would never show. That's a hell of a lot of sunlight to go through the size of a bullet hole. I don't care. I love it. It's beautiful. It makes for a beautiful, if it's beautiful dusty, shot after if beautiful it's dusty, shot. It's backlit. So if it's a dusty motel yeah. room, you'll that's you'll be able to see where those streaks yeah. are. Yeah, and we get this nice, you know, big. We get the cop at the door. Man, don't don't be the cop that has to go knock on the door. Man, like you should be like doing anything you can to draw the, not draw the straw on that job because boy, if you're if it's we suspect there's something going on in there. Billy, go knock on the door there. Well, you just don't want to be that guy because well, he takes a shotgun right to the through. I mean, buckshot through the so body. Big, another big squib. This totally reminds me of the of the Bonnie and Clyde shootout and of the Dillinger shootout mm-hmm. in Little Bohemia, and and even then subsequently Ang Lee when he does the shootout in Ride with the Devil, where you uh, know Dominic, is, Angel Dominic, and the proposition. There's that big opening, right? And the proposition, which has yeah. a lot of like stuck in a in a tin, I think it's like a tin barn, and bullet holes just sunlight shooting through, and yeah. Um, so it's yeah, it's it. genre it's like it's again criminals on the run, lovers on the run trope, and so it yeah. keeps relocating us back in these genre worlds that aren't vampire movies, but that are crime mm-hmm. movies or westerns or gangster movies. Yeah, it's and you know something's something's gotta happen something drastic's gonna happen here we're we're cornered we're surrounded you know what what are we gonna do to get through this well they've got an ace up their up their sleeve in that they can get shot a whole bunch of times and keep going so and they caleb, got and they got that's a guy something who can, caleb he can run outside yeah. and not totally burst into frame he'll, flames he'll just get roasted up a little bit because he's not a full vampire so he's the only person that could possibly save them by going out into the sunlight albeit with a, right. a blanket over him and actually save and the day. The, and it's the the thing he's willing to do. Right. So, okay, you're not going to shoot, you're not going to help us shoot these guys. Uh, we can't go outside perfect for you. You go out and get the car, you know, and, and so, but you these moments in these kind of movies where it's like, feels like they're really, really screwed, you know, it's like, how are they going to get out of this one, you know? It's classic. It's and, kind of and amazing it's because scene. he earns himself and a James respite. Lecr- James, James Legro is there now. Come on. So were they thinking after what happened at that roadhouse? They were thinking he was just going. They were going to show up, arrest these guys, and have him identify. He would identify them. them. Yes, come right. right along with us. We don't they, need a two way mirror. Do, or don't anything. you think maybe you ought to get the guys the, in, in custody first <laughs> before you bring this poor kid this who just went through a really traumatic experience? It's just a cowboy movie at this point. It's like bring him along. We're going to look at him. Who's the director who directs the scene and James Legro gets killed? Because I feel like there's another director out there that's twisted enough to actually have him get shot yeah, in the scene. Probably too. <laughs> like Tar- Tar- Tarantino, yeah, Tarantino. I don't know. Yeah, probably. Uh, but it kind of feels like no when he's deed. there, you no see he's there. It's like unpunished. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but so they make they make good their escape. 
and they managed to find out find themselves at yet another motel. This one called the Godspeed Motel. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's a more positive place for them to show up. And we get a moment of of reintroduction into the group of of celebration and Severin even gives him his spurs. So you've earned your spurs. I, I in a way it's kind of weird. It's like I'm it's great that he saved them. He's still got to go kill somebody. And there's still no guarantee that he's going to do it. But, well, but anyway. Jesse makes that clear, yeah. though. You bought yourself some time. You bought yourself some time. He's not a complete time. jerk. Right. He's not going to say, this doesn't mean anything. He's, he says it with a smile on his face. He appreciates what happened, too. But he makes it clear that, that this is not permanent. Yeah. Like, for now, we're going to celebrate. We've got to play the game again tomorrow, though. You know, kind of, kind of attitude. So... Yes. But for the moment, we feel pretty good about things. We do, and then and Caleb and May even have a scene out together in the night where Caleb says he sees well at night, and he's starting to sound. It's starting to feel like maybe he is in fact going to join join the crew. Yeah, like he's he's yeah. over any reservations. Um, but of of course, uh, fate intervenes, and little Homer, who goes out to have a cigarette, sees uh, a little girl at the Coke machine, and it turns out that it's. Caleb's sister Sarah. So he takes her back to the room, and uh, Diamondback asks where Dad is. So she goes to look for Dad, and then everybody seems to arrive back in the room at the exact same moment. Caleb gets there, Dad shows up, and we have this big confrontation uh, about um, who's going to do what. And Dad shoots Severin, doesn't do any good. And then, you know, oh, thankfully, oh, go ahead. Great. <laughs> well, I mean, he doesn't just shoot him and it doesn't do any good. He shoots him and, or no, Severin, you're, Jesse is who he Jesse, shoots. Jesse, sorry, Jesse, yeah, sorry. He shoots Jesse and Jesse. He uh, shoots him and Jesse spits the bullet out and gives it back, back to, to him. him. Right. And then it's breaks his hand. It's pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, then, but then, sure enough, the door gets opened and once again, the sunlight comes blasting into the room. So the sunlight is, um, God bless Caleb. He is a child of the sun. He gets so many lucky breaks with uh, with sunlight mm-hmm. in the course of this thing. Yeah, and this is interesting timing, right? Because it seemed like it was, I don't know, this is where movie time can kind of, you don't want to think too much about what time it was when they got away from the hotel, the other hotel. How far did they go here? What time of night is it when Homer goes out there to the vending machine? Um, the test pattern just came on TV. Isn't that usually around midnight yeah. when that happens, or one o'clock yeah, at the or time, two o'clock? But so it's like suddenly the sunlight. It's one of those times where they sped up time for the sake of a plot point. Yeah. But again, I don't care, especially not at this point in the movie. I'm not going to care. Like I'm, uh, I, I, I'm fine with whatever they want to do with this movie by, by now. If I'm watching the movie still and enjoying the movie still, they've got a lot of goodwill. Then they're burning so, it up. They burn up a lot of goodwill with the sunlight over the next. Two sequences. That's that's for sure. <laughs> I did want to make one uh, trivial point. Uh, Sarah is buying a Coke from the vending machine for sixty cents, and I want to point out how I I still remember to this day when it went from fifty to sixty cents, and how that was like. <laughs> now I gotta have a dime too. Like I remember it being a weird. Oh thing yeah, right. Like, you can't just do kind it of with a chip. Like what? Uh. Yeah, what? Why you know sixty cents and I can't I, I kind of couldn't believe it was that long ago that it happened I was just, would have guessed it was like the early nineties or something but I still remember it was like sixty cents what's going on wow. <laughs> anyway dumb aside sorry well they managed to rescue Caleb though and get him into the get him into the truck and get away with him so Caleb is saved embraced by you know he he's he says he's okay 
um, dad, dad's going to transfuse him. So he actually has to tell dad what's going on and has to beg him to not right. take him to the doctor and kind of has to explain what's going on. We don't have to listen to too much of it, but we listen to enough of it that we know that dad's going to listen and dad's going to give him a blood transfusion, which like, you know, we're back to Dracula. That happens in Dracula. That's how they keep Lucy alive. Um, and then, of course, earlier on when May was feeding Caleb out of her veins, that's another Dracula moment. So there's a lot of a lot of classic vampire stuff that gets reconfigured here. But go ahead. Uh, yeah. We haven't talked a lot about about the specifics of the structure here. But this is third act, right? We're like, we just moved. I will tell you this. Um, this was a, a surprise third act. I did I did not see this this particular third act coming when I first watched this movie. I was like, oh, he's with dad. And now they're like settled in. And now, of course, I immediately went, okay, but there's going to be a shoe drop in here. But this is not what I thought. I thought it was going to keep escalating 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 and finally a big blowout something was going to happen i did not expect him to actually get away with his dad and sister and go home like i thought that was the end of the movie and get cured and get turned into a human and cured and all this i was like that's some good i think that's some really good writing it actually threw me for a loop the first time i saw this movie i was like wait a minute and again though it doesn't lose any like the air doesn't get sucked out of the movie because just when you're going, huh, you surprised me and you took a turn, you know that that other shoe is still in the air. Like, yeah. you're like, oh, okay, there's still tension. There's still possibilities. But now I don't know exactly how it's going to come, you know, right. and it's good. It's good. It's a great thing. Yeah, because you have a couple of beats where he's walking around during the sunlight and then they're having dinner yeah. together and you're kind of like, well, the he's movie can't be food. over, but he's, yeah. he's, he's, back to, he's back to normal. So it's a really great time. It hits at a carry-like thing, but you know it's a little early for the false ending. Yeah, because we're only 75 minutes into the movie. Yeah, Yeah, it's unsettling, and it works on that frequency, you know? So, um, again, you you could think the easy way out would have been to just keep escalating the action. Um, You could break it up and, like, move into a different set piece or whatever, but it's still going to be like, well, you can't go home until the end, right? And it's interestingly just, enough, it's a that school night, that he goes home before the end. He's like, he, yeah. yeah, and he goes outside and he meets May, and she realizes he's been turned into a human, and she doesn't know what to do. Like she doesn't, mm-hmm. she has, she runs away essentially, and we think, well, now, uh, well, uh, okay, well, maybe that's the end of the movie because mm-hmm. she can't be with him, and 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 then you get your final big turn, which he goes upstairs and he realizes his sister is gone, that they've taken his sister, and that the car's tires have been slashed. And so he has to take action to go get his sister back. And he chooses to do that by saddling up and getting onto a horse and riding right. a horse into town. So we're back to the Western again. Well, yeah, and it's interesting because what we have for most of the movie is this prodigal son story, right? We have lovers on the run, whatever you want to call it, but there's a prodigal son, like whatever, maybe that's not the exact term, but a son, a lost son, wants to find his way back home. How is he going to do it? And it twists it and makes it a protect protecting the homestead movie, um, more like a western again, where it's like I got to this is my homestead, this is my family. I'm going to do anything I have to do to protect it. And it's kind of like, hey, that's that's an interesting reversal to come back to. You started out with a western. It's kind of not a western for most of the movie, actually. Right. Like, the the idea that it's like okay, it starts off that way with those ideas, but then it becomes. A, a lot of other things. There's nothing particularly Western about 
any of the other things that happen other than some of the imagery. And now it becomes a full-on Western where they're full going to show down in the street. You got two guys facing off in the street at the two end. Two guys yeah. facing off. Well, even more. Like, you get multiple face-offs in the street. Yeah, right. But, uh, but and then it's this modernized version where it's horse and semi. <laughs> horse yeah. versus... We don't got any guns. We're not quick drawing here. We're playing chicken with a horse and a semi. You know, it's just kind of crazy. And then it gets... But it does then get to guns and knives. Like, the, and what's knives interesting and... is I tracked it, like, from basically the time that he gets to town to the end um, of of the film is, like, it's a it's a 10-minute... It's a big sequence with multiple action beats within it. You know, there's the truck fight, then there's he and Jesse, and then they get the daughter again, and there's another chase, and then the sun starts to come up, and it's it's all really kind of integrated in this in this pretty pretty kinetic, endless, big finale. It's almost like mm-hmm. the the third act of the movie is one sequence or a sequence mm-hmm. and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So, Caleb versus Severin first. With the truck, right? With the truck, and then he gets in the truck. Okay, that's right. He kills the truck driver. That poor bastard. Another one. I know. This guy didn't deserve this at all. Yeah. Um, And then we get a little game of chicken where Severin allows himself to get hit by a truck because he knows it won't hurt him. Um. I'm trying to remember now. I'm totally but then he forgetting. blows up, but then he blows the truck up, and we got to assume that the fire right, ultimately right, burns him up. So, but then this is, very this is very Terminator. Very Terminator. So you almost R- expect Severin to come out of the fire. Yeah, yeah you as do. A skeleton. You totally do. You totally do. If he'd been a yeah. Terminator, he would have. And then, yeah. and then, interestingly enough, he has this face face off with Jesse in the street. And that surprised me because, in a way, I thought that his animosity or his his relationship was with Severin was more important than his one with Jesse. And I kind of mm-hmm. would have expected the 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 confrontation with Jesse to come after or to, to, with Severin to come after the one with Jesse. Right. Because Jesse doesn't seem right. as important a character relationship wise to me. But anyway, he does wind up face to face with Jesse, and Jesse has the accomplice of Diamondback trying to sneak up behind. And she throws the knife, and he ducks, and she manages to throw the knife into Jesse's face. Um, into and then a they, dummy's mouth. Dummy's mouth. And then they <laughs> yeah, grab yeah. they grab Sarah and get her back. Homer grabs Sarah. They get them into the car, and so the the chase. And May winds up in the car as well. So you've mm-hmm. basically got Caleb trying to get his sister back from a car full of people. And then the person who really takes the heroic, heroic action at that point is May, who grabs mm-hmm. Sarah and throws himself out of the car as the sun is coming up and, mm-hmm. and rescues her and takes her back towards Caleb, risking her life as the sunlight starts to roast everybody. Sadly, Homer gets out of the car. He tries to catch Sarah. He spontaneously bursts into flame in, the, in, in like a time bandits explosion of this little guy. And then um, <laughs> Diamondback and uh, Jesse hold hands, realizing that the, their lives have come to an end. And they're, they, I think they say good times to each other, you know, thinking back on all the wonderful times that they've seen. And then they burst into flame as well. So we're left with Caleb and Sarah in a blanket over May. And, um, there's some pretty fancy footwork that happens for this epilogue from that point to the end of the movie. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's some, I guess there was another, they had another approach to shooting Homer's death 
that didn't work because it was so windy. So uh-huh. it became an optical effect. And I don't have any idea what uh, uh, what else were they going to do. Uh, I'm, I'm confused by that because she says very specifically on the commentary, it was too windy that day to do what we were going to do. So we had to do it optically. I'm like, were you going to set this guy on fire? What right, are you yeah, talking full burn about? or something maybe? Maybe uh, they had a little a child. burn suit. Uh, yeah. But Yikes. I love the optical effect. I think it works fantastic. I've always loved this. I, I don't oh, care. It, is, it looks a little fake, motion, but it's great. And it's surreal yeah. and it makes it really dreamlike. And that's the thing about her confidence as a director. Like the choices mm-hmm. that she makes are always so emotional mm-hmm. that it's okay to like slow it down and make it dreamlike and make it. I, I it's, you know, it's again, a, I don't have much to criticize about this movie because no, no, I really no. love the way it feels. And then the Jesse and Diamondback situation is, you know, they fight for their life. They're fighting for survival all the time. But when it comes down to it, they're probably a little relieved, right? I feel like there's something in the performance where they're like, you know what? There's nothing we can do about it now. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Cool. It's that, a resignation. It's very, exist- very existential. Yeah. And then the there's a great, she shoots the explosion of the, or the the car bursts into flames and then pillars up and the fire. I don't know a lot about fire and electric electrical lines, but it seems that there's something that happens there. Like watch it again. There's like a blue beam sort of in the middle of the fire and smoke. And it's just beautiful looking. And I don't know if it was accidental or, or what, but it, it looks like maybe the fire got into a transformer or something and started burning some elements of electrical stuff. It looks so great. And again, she's like, I'm going to just hold the camera here. We're going to watch this for a little bit. This beautiful destruction. It's it's wonderfully done. But yeah, you're, you're right. From here, from here, plot-wise, it's too late to really criticize it at this point anyway to me. Unless they really pulled something. It's like, okay, well, they're really just kind of pulling the same trick they did with, with Caleb. Exactly. With her. Open so the bar and the care. light comes in. It doesn't burn her up. She must be alive. And we're, they embrace. And don't be afraid of the light, he says. Mm-hmm. And... And then we have a really cool freeze frame with an optical zoom in on it. Mm-hmm. And it's really yeah. kind of immediate and kind of says, hey, folks, the movie's over. <laughs> you know, here yeah. it is. This is your last image. The two of them are together. And the fades out and the beautiful Tangerine Dream music comes up. It's a, it's a, it's a really amazing movie. Um, obviously, yeah. nobody's listening to this who probably who hasn't already seen it. But... Um, but yeah, it's a it's a really special film. Well, and I hope I hope enough of our listeners have seen it because of the aforementioned difficulty of finding it. Sometimes, uh, hopefully, you can find. It. If you haven't seen it, I mean, we're you know you probably didn't listen this far, but please seek it out. Like, look, it's not your fault. It's not available. Get it however you can, and watch this movie. and And I think you'll enjoy it. Especially, I can't see how an, a person that likes the movie Aliens would not at least enjoy this movie to a certain extent yeah. with the casting and some of the similarities and and it's bill pa- i mean if you thought um if you thought hudson was <laughs> was paxton going full on man this is like this is his this is my favorite paxton like yeah, this and hudson right. and then there's a couple of little ones here and there some of his more like straightforward performances i think he's a great actor but it's more fun to, to see bill paxton going full on yeah. High octane Bill Paxton, and this is the ultimate, I think. Um, and you know, she talks in the commentary. Bigelow talks about a lot of the things that he brought to the scenes, like t- apparently taking the guy's sunglasses off. Uh, he's like pretends to get strangled, and how much fun he's having with that when he like 
starts to kill the guy and takes his sunglasses off before he does it. I guess that was all Paxton, you know, and it's like iconic. Like yeah. him in those sunglasses killing that guy, that's like a, one of the searing images from this movie, you know. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll always love to give a shout out to the late Bill Paxton and Lance Henriksen, one of my favorites. Amazing how many of your favorite movies he shows up in. Sometimes you won't even notice. Yeah. Uh, he'll just be in the background. In the 70s, he was an incredible background player. Good Lord. Network. Like um, all these movies he was in in the 70s. I don't, I don't know if this is our last Patreon or not. It probably is. But uh, regardless, I wanted to just thank everybody for all the support that they've given us over the years with these little extras. It's helped us keep the lights on. And, and mm-hmm. uh, we, we, really, we really value the listenership. And, and we've made so many friends doing these via the Facebook page and elsewhere that it's, it's really nice. Yeah. It's nice, nice to be talking to everybody again. For sure. All right. Well, anything else? I think that's going to do it. Find right, us, we'll find think... us on Facebook, follow yeah. us on Twitter. Oh and, yeah. Uh, We'd love to have a further conversation about near dark with, with everybody out there. So and we'll have more stuff this, on the regular feed Facebook too. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. We got more stuff coming. So, all right, everybody. Thank all you right. for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.